Thanks for downloading the latest episode of the C-Suite podcast to be produced in partnership with Future Brand, where our focus this time is on the changes in consumer behaviour in the financial services and fintech sectors that have arisen due to the pandemic. My name is Natalie Silverman, and to discuss this and the impact it will have on brands and their brand experiences, we have brought together a global panel. Stuart Hare, CEO of Wealth and Personal Banking at HSBC, Shahar Bialik, founder and CEO of Curve, and Simon Williams, Chief Growth Officer at Future Brand, are with me online here in the UK. And Brooke Brown, Senior Vice President, Brand and Enterprise Marketing Strategy at US Bank, together with Camilla Ma, a brand strategy specialist, spoke to me from the US earlier. And so we'll be hearing their comments throughout the show. So to kick things off, Simon, let's come to you first. Why were you so keen to bring our guests together to discuss this topic at this time? Well, the interesting thing is uh, for the last eight years, we've run a global brand strength study called the Future Brand Index. And uh, historically, it looks at the top 500 companies in the world by market capitalization. And it's a study we run alongside PwC. And historically, the subset of financial services has not shown much movement in terms of innovation, brand strength, trust. Indeed, some dimensions of uh, legacy and and, and incumbents had gone backwards. But our study in 2021 changed all that. Although we'd had historical anecdotal comments around fintechs, Revolut, etc. being mentioned, In the 2021 study, what we saw is a quite dramatic uptick in terms of attribution of innovation, digital adoption by customers on the the retail side of banking. It's a huge behavioural change. And what we wanted to do is try and get under it because the sort of positive shift that we've seen attributed to financial services brands between the 2019 study and the 2021 study, which is obviously bridged by the pandemic, appears to have driven quite a lot of behavioural change amongst key consumer segments. I wanted to explore that across a, a, a broad range of players in the sector. So ideally, someone uh, like Stuart and Shaha at different ends of the spectrum, but explore those changes and how we think they might uh, evolve Uh, over the next 40 minutes or so. Well, Stuart, as the representative of of one of those incumbent brands on our panel, how has the past couple of years impacted HSBC in terms of brand and customer experience then? So I'll talk a little bit through the UK lens, but of course the pandemic's still going on. We've got colleagues locked down in Shanghai, uh, in Hong Kong, gradually coming out from lockdowns. But from a UK perspective, Really, everything changed when we went into lockdown um, in March. We had our existing transformation plans, our digitization plans. We were looking to copy and mimic a lot of the innovations that we saw through fintechs and use our scale and existing capabilities to perhaps take them on even further. But the timescales for that seemed too long. What happened in March 2020 was we didn't have the luxury of timescales anymore. So a lot of what we'd previously done perhaps through a branch or in a contact centre, had to immediately be available to our customers online. So um, somehow or other, agility drove into our organisation that's been around for 157 years. 
And a lot of that was to do with necessity, but a lot of it also, it taught us a lot about how you can get out of your own way, how, you know, in terms of over-governing change, uh, in terms of actually making risk-based decisions, quality risk-based decisions quickly, getting the right people in the room or virtual room in, 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 in the case of the pandemic to be able to cut through decision-making and actually start to use the technologies that we'd invested in, be it signing docs uh, digitally, be it vScreen, some basic capabilities that we'd always had but we hadn't properly put into production to much more complex offerings like the use of open banking to facilitate information capture and really starting to, to start to push forward some of our capabilities. Shaha, let's bring you into the discussion. For those in our audience unaware of your business, it'll probably be good just to start by you giving us a quick introduction to Curve as well, if you may. So Curve is building the operating system for money, a financial super app, if you'd like. Uh, we're enabling customers to collate and manage and control all their finances from whatever supplier it may be from one operating system. We start with all your cards in one, double the rewards, and I'm willing to connect all your cards into one place and enjoy zero effects, double the rewards, better understanding of your finances with insights and budgeting and many other aspects of that. We moved over time with new experiences from the ability to go back in time and move transactions from account A to account B, even after you made a transaction. And of course, we patented it. And we started to allow customers to connect more of the type of players in the market from accounts directly, their HPC account, if you'd like, and down to other pots of money, whether it's crypto pots like a wallet, crypto wallet, or Coinbase account, if you'd like, making basically the entire ecosystem fungible, centered on the customer, to enable the customer to achieve financial freedom, to empower customers to achieve financial freedom. And that's our mission. The approach we've taken is very different approach than what exists in the market, in the financial market, which is the approach of aggregation. We build a layer three ecosystem sets on top of layer two, where Visa and MasterCard operates, and sits on top of layer one, where HBC and other banks operate, just connecting everything beautifully into one beautiful interface. Uh, and what changes would you say that you've seen over the past couple of years? I, I disagree with a lot of what, what, what Simon and Stuart said here. And I disagree with the facts. The facts are correct. The COVID pandemic have accelerated behavioral change, but the behavioral change was always there. In any market where the internet came in, take it commerce, take it uh, fashion, TV, music, the same behavioral traits have existed. Customers are always looking for more convenience, control, and simplicity. Everything in the market. And as new technology come into play, for example, a new format to distribute uh, music, MP3 versus CDs, new players coming into the market and created a very complex market that offers you faster, better, cheaper. That's the unbundling of the market. We saw it in the music early on. We had companies like Pandora, Deezer, YouTube, all coming into the market and trying to distribute music in a better way, better means, faster, better, cheaper for the customer. But eventually, a category queue emerged and owns the entire ecosystem from distribution down to production of the value chain. It's always been the same kind of movement. In fact, Jim Berksdale, the legendary CEO of Netscape, said he only knows two ways how to make money, rebundling and unbundling. That's absolutely correct. So what the pandemic did is it accelerated the new distribution channels, which are zero distribution costs or more virtual, the, the internet, the mobile wallet. And this is where new entrants came in to offer faster, better, cheaper. But behind the scenes, they still operate with legacy providers like HPC or Lloyd's. So TransferWise is a good example, faster, better, cheaper remittance. But in the end, up until a year and a half ago, behind the scenes was still Lloyd's and Barclays providing all the treasury management and ethics. Wasn't 
transfer doing that. So the pandemic indeed have accelerated a lot of those digital channels and the four digital players because you could basically could not go outside of the home and, and into the branch. But the behavior has not changed. The behavior was always there. It's just now they had no other choice than just to accelerate the behavioral change. And it's an inevitable outcome. There's a beautiful white paper by Frank Wortman from QED, Copernican Moment in Banking, which is, by the way, it's a white paper from five years ago that have predicted exactly what's happening in the market now and what about to happen in the market. And the bottom line is that they want to be a bank, basically. Stuart, Simon, I want to just bring you back in in response to what uh, Shahar has said. Do you just want to comment on how he had initially disagreed with what you were saying, Stuart? I don't think he disagreed with that. I was talking about the innovation, the speed of innovation in HSBC. I think the consumer trends, I absolutely agree with Shahar. The, the reality is banking, you know, the first mobile apps in banking was you know, 2008, 2007. And since then, the adoption curve has just been enormous. You know, 50 67% of our customers in HSBC, which can be viewed as a traditional bank, are active mobile customers. Over 90% of our product sales are done in digital capabilities. So it's undenying. The bit that I would say, it's it, it's not an inevitability, therefore there's a super app that takes over them all, is because people live lives and they deal with complex things where they do want the human touch. And for example, dealing with a bereavement, a power of attorney, going through a separation, if you're a victim of domestic abuse and need some form of support, there's a number of areas. If you're a Ukrainian refugee and you're needing to come into the country without IDNV, there there is an awful lot of areas where the human support and a sort of sympathetic organisation can offer a lot of value. And I think in those aspects, there always will be. I completely agree with Shahar, though, that for all transactional elements, they're going to be digitised and they're going to be digitised yesterday. Simon, did you have anything you wanted to add? I agree with basically most of what's been said. The only thing that I would say is that the the Future Brand Index, what it does allude to, and it's looking at traditional banks in somewhat of a, of a vacuum, is that the digitization efforts that they've made have been rewarded amongst traditional customer segments with higher levels of likability, ease of use. So traditionally, those innovation and trust, those dimensions that were hard to shift the needle on for transactional legacy banks have been shifted quite dramatically because customers that were conservative by nature have used digital channels for the first time and liked it. Simple as that. I don't know whether you agree, Stuart. I think that's right. I think if you... If, if you sort of catalogue the last 15 years, you've had the global financial crisis where everyone's faith in their, uh, not necessarily loved, but trusted institution was rocked. And suddenly, you know, people's perception of banks being, you know, largely flawless, rationally sensible beasts was sort of thrown up in the air. There then was a period of conduct issues in Australia, Royal Commission in the UK, things like PPI, et cetera, where, you know, the emotional trust then went and then branches were being shut, call, call centres, the phones weren't being answered. So it was a sort of a, a series of either events or, or mismanagement that left the traditional consumer feeling as though they'd been let down by their banks. And I think your, your, your survey has evidenced that. It certainly wasn't the increases. What digitization has done for these more traditional customers has basically allowed them to get a glimpse into their bank that can do things at pace, they can do things with confidence, that provides reassurance, 
and actually starts to build the idea of competence back into the banks. That coupled with, actually through the pandemic, um, an awful lot of support was thrown out. Um, our own business, HSBC in the UK, £20 billion worth of support was distributed, either through bounce back loans or, or, or through forgiveness in, in, in payments or uh, payment holidays. So the heart also came up. So rationally, we became more effective. We weren't shutting branches, we weren't not answering phones. We had a great digital presence, coupled with having um, a, a reasonable heart in such a difficult circumstance. What Stuart and someone referred to here is exactly what happens when market begins to unbundle and eventually rebundle, is there's a race between incumbent to achieve innovation and the new player to achieve distribution. Unfortunately, I have no one example in the past where incumbent was able to achieve innovation faster than the new player achieving distribution, but maybe in finance it would happen. Also, another point I want to make accurate, uh, there's two models in, in the super app operating system for money approach. One model is the one that uh, you mentioned, Revolut is an example, Simon's so let's take that as an example, is a winner-take-all model. Uh, those who are British uh, and live in the UK would recognize that with Maxim Spencer. I can buy shorts, I can buy shoes, I can buy food. Everything is Maxim Spencer branded at Maxim Spencer store. It fits for a very specific type of audience, but I can go to Amazon and buy any brand I want. And if I want an Amazon basic branded content, I can also do that. It's a hybrid aggregation approach. And in that hybrid aggregation approach, which Curve is the only player because we have to create this ecosystem, banks have a place. They have a great place. In fact, if you were to come to my company and talk with my people, we'll tell you banks are doing a great job. It's just the definition of the job we give to banks, is, which is multiply money to the economy, take the deposits. And hand on heart, I should be doing a great job at it, keeping my deposits safe. And by the way, 99% of the banks in the world are uh, doing a great job at it. It's just that they become much more, as Stuart said, transactional banking. And the elements of non-transaction is where the banks like FBC could win, the personal emotions, the connections, the, the competency of being a bank that knows how to lend responsibly and to regulation. And that will continue and likely will be originating customers from those super apps, those two partnerships. Okay, well, as I mentioned in the intro, we, we caught up last week with Brooke Brown from US Bank and brand strategist Camilla Marr. And here's their take on what the impact that the pandemic has had on banking customers in the US. We're going to start with Brooke. Well, the pandemic, I mean, certainly up was upheaval for everyone and banking customers were no different as people retreated to their homes, um, you know, and thought about new ways of doing things without being in person. We saw a big shift in how customers were interacting with the bank. You know, a big change was the drive to online banking, which we'd already been seeing, but that trend really accelerated in the increased role of uh, mobile. Uh, thankfully, we'd already begun our digital transformation in 2018. We'd launched a new app faster than we ever had before with the input of customers. And so we were really in a good position to make that shift swiftly. And I think that that application of digital technology and that migration of customer behavior really just accelerated a lot of the work we had underway in terms of just speeding application processes um, for customers and, and consumers alike. You know, one thing I would say that didn't change was the desire for human interaction, even on top of those digital platforms. And we found that, you know, even though people wanted to do most of their banking remotely, they still relied on our people for complex discussions around their, their money or, you know, financial um, needs. And so it was a really interesting time for us to think about that combination. And it unlocked new ways of serving our customers. Today, we offer co-browse with video so that our bankers and customers can interact in real time, um, leveraging the digital technology, but still being together. And that's been pretty awesome. Um, having the help of humans with digital technology really made that, that transition, I think, more smooth and seamless for us. 
And have you had feedback from people about those video calls that, that that's been helpful from missing the human contact? Tremendous feedback. And the growth of how customers are using that offering was exponential. You know, it was something we quickly migrated to through the course of the pandemic. And now I don't think we can imagine doing business without it again. So it's been really quite phenomenal to see the impact of our customer behaviors and also the way we were able to respond with digital technology. Camilla, is there anything you want to add to that? Yeah, I, I think it's a good point. And I think what's interesting on that topic is, you know, before the pandemic hit, yes, all the digital transformations were in action. All the banks were going through this kind of, how do we build the best app and the customer experience and connect all these different things? And U.S. Bank's been doing a wonderful job of that. But the customers weren't always ready, right? So even if the bank had this amazing digital platform, a lot of the customers were kind of, I'm set in my ways. I'm happy to go to my bank, use my ATM. I know my bank teller. I know how I want to do my deposits, you know, all these different things. But then when COVID hit, they didn't really have a choice. So all of a sudden, it wasn't just the alignment of the bank having the infrastructure and the products available. It's also actually that the consumers themselves had the interest and the need to use them. So all of that acceleration happened on both sides. And so now you have people very much more fluent in digital banking and these different ways of thinking about the services. And so they've also come full circle on that. And now they're going, okay, well, this is actually pretty cool. What else can I do? And so now what's nice is that, you know, as the banks accelerate their offerings and think about how to layer in smarter platforms to service people, different nuggets that really work really well when you integrate, you know, AI and all these different things into banking, you can do much more targeted specific things for a customer in a way that you can't do in a bank space or a physical space, right? So what's really cool is that that can now happen and the customer is on that journey as well with the bank. It's, it's a, a shorter leap and gap. So, Stuart, listening to what Brooke was saying there, it really resonated with what you had said about how many customers still really do want that human interaction. You gave some really specific examples of what's going on in the world right now and how important that is. Do you want to just elaborate on that a bit? Yeah, maybe maybe if I may try to make three points, try to make three points. Um, the, the, the first one is banking is a low engagement category. It's not something you get inherently excited about, oh, I'm going to phone my bank today, I'm going to go my app today. It, it doesn't have that sort of stickiness, but it needs to be competent and it needs to be competently handled. And so for transactions, digital absolutely works, as I said before. But when you're dealing with complex issues that aren't just about the bank, and I talked before about, say, a bereavement issue, you're dealing with you know, how to get a power of attorney, you're dealing with different agencies, you're, 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 there's a lot of complexity at a very emotional time of the year. Someone that can just help you out with that and, and, and just help navigate the steps so that you're not left contending with forms that you don't really understand. That's going to be really important. Now, it's not that digital doesn't play a role there. It's that someone to help you navigate it. Someone that's maybe done it 60 times in the year that then sits alongside you who's only going to have to do it hopefully one, one time in your life. There are many different moments that matter where that little human help, that little expert guidance can be really important. Long-term financial planning, bereavements, power of attorney, separation, protecting the things that matter. There's a number of them. But, you know, that's because life's complicated. Um, and unfortunately or fortunately, banking has to weave itself around someone's life. Simon, did you want to comment? No, I I, I am interested to see what both Shaha and Stuart think about the um, the attempts of, of big international banks, particularly American banks like Chase, to come into the UK market with a 
digital-only proposition, albeit backed up by a human call centre. And just the, the market entry economics and the viability of that, given that they don't have all the branch network considerations. And Marcus is from Goldman Sachs is just a savings platform at the moment. I just thought, wondered what you thought about the, um, the efforts of people like Chase and Goldman to bring singular digital propositions into markets that probably would have been, if not cost prohibitive, um, from a central viability perspective, not attractive to them historically, and whether you think they'll succeed or fail. One of the things that was um, pretty, I remember the first time I saw that and, and realized kind of how impactful the brand of Chase is in the US, is probably I'll put it top three next to Apple. And one of the strongest, beautiful, most beautiful branch in banking I've ever seen. In fact, it doesn't feel like a branding, like a banking brand. And by the way, they're not the only one in the US there. I think Bank of America, it's not as Chase, but still very well positioned there, City and Capital One as well. So I never realized why anyone in his right mind will try to come to the US and compete with Chase in their own game. Good luck with that. So now looking at the UK and Europe, the UK and Europe is an extremely, especially in the UK, centralized banking. Uh, you have kind of the top seven banks in, across the UK. So very centralized market. Uh, whereas versus in the US, you have 5,000, 6,000 FDIC-insured banks. They have a different problem of fragmentation, whereas here there's a problem of centralization. I would never open a startup and try to compete with Barclays or HPC in the UK market. It's don't have enough competency as a bank and money to go do that. But Chase, who know how to build a great brand, know how to build a great product, come into the UK and they don't have the legacy ecosystem that HPC and Barclays have in the UK, means that they can operate at the same level of competency and funding that Barclays and HPC has, but they don't have all the legacy of DNA, which was wrong in the culture of banking versus fintech, and the legacy ecosystem of the ledgers and the processing and the, all the, the the engine behind being a bank. They can start from scratch and reimagine everything. So if I was Barclays and HPC and I looked Chase coming in, uh, I would be concerned. Uh, it doesn't mean that the HPC or Barclays would lose the game in banking. I think they have remarkable brands nonetheless. Uh, I'm an HPC customer doing a great job, well, okay job. Uh, and, and, and of course, there's improvements, but the competition is going to be fierce. But as a customer, it is just beautiful. I can get a saving account from, from Marcus. I can get a checking account from HBC. I can get a rewarding account from Chase. I'm just benefiting all worlds. And this is exactly where Curve comes in. He's like, everyone here doing a great job. Chase, HBC, Barclays, have fun with them. Just bring it all together into one place. Easier to manage and much more control. That's exactly the game we're playing. A different ball game altogether. Yeah, look, um, I, I, I think Shahar said we should be worried. Of course we're worried. You know, when you bring... Um, Actually, in Revolut and, and their success, Monzo and their success, I think you, there's something to learn from everyone. When you look at Goldman, Goldman's now been in for two, three years, nearly three years, and it hasn't impacted materially um, the HSBC business. It's done well. It's gathered a lot of deposits. Some of those deposits are being used um, for lending purposes to consumers, but a lot of it is also being used to support some of Goldman's other activities in the UK, uh, more in the corporate, institutional and markets businesses. So I think their entry is slightly different to Chase, uh, which Shahar um, focused on. With Chase, I think JP Morgan are making a play to build a digital offering that they want to be able to export to other markets. But it's a test and learn. And there are some things about the UK market that make it more challenging. It's a very regulated market. Of course, that adds extra cost and extra oversight. But additionally, people enjoy free, if in credit, banking. 
Um, and so therefore, you know, the provision of an everyday banking account is essentially free for uh, customers who want to use it as such. And that makes revenue generation that little bit more difficult. And so therefore, the lead time to profit, which JP Morgan can be very patient about, because of course, they make a lot of money, uh, will be a little bit longer. What time will tell is whether people have staying presence. When you've been in a bank that's been in a, comp- been in a country for 158 years, you've got to be patient. You've got to see through credit cycles, you've got to see through world wars, you've got to see through all sorts of things. And there are times when you don't make money and it may be a struggle to see how you're going to make money in the future. The question then is, do you keep investing? Do you keep innovating? So I think those banks with the deepest tent pegs into the ground of any country that they happen to find themselves in have more to lose and ultimately will stay longer and be more resilient. And Chase may well do the same. And if they do, I sense they will be successful. Thank you, Stuart. Before we move on to talk more about the Future Brand Index, we did pose the same questions to Brooke and Camilla about their views on the fintech uh, sector in the US. They they shared some similar views to you. We're going to hear from them now. That is the topic du jour and has been for some time. I think, you know, in the US, we've seen fintechs really take hold. Um, they've done an exceptional job of understanding kind of specific bespoke customer needs and then meeting them seamlessly. I mean, absolute ease and flawlessness. And I think that 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 application of technology and and customer insight really unlocked what we're seeing from fintechs now. And I think that the the way they've grown their business and their brands is really linked kind of distinctly to their experiences they provided. Customer-focused, seamless applications of technology to make lives better for people. We've learned a lot from fintechs. I think we're still looking to learn a lot from fintechs and partnering in a whole new level um, with those who've really come to understand these bespoke customer needs and how technology can, can solve for them. I don't think necessarily about fintechs as stand apart from banking any longer. You know, for a long time, it seemed like this disintegration was happening and banking was kind of maybe slow to adopt some of that technology. But now the partnership and the collaboration uh, with fintechs is unlocking, I think, a lot of new innovation for banking services that were rather traditional previously. Yeah, it's like any of those industries, right? When when the digital disruptors come in and start shaking up the boat a little bit, it's great because it forces sort of the big guys to accelerate that thinking around what can we do in that space to compete, but also how do we ourselves think about partnering to what Brooke was saying with these people so that we can have the best offering overall and kind of connect those parts of the customer experience that we never really previously did. And I think also what the fintechs tend to kind of bring is a different point of view on branding a little bit too, right? They're very, because they get to start from scratch, it's much easier to start from scratch and have a wonderful purpose and a a beautifully written positioning statement that's, you know, then coming in with one of these big banks and thinking about how to connect all these pieces and really drive greater value through that storytelling. Um, And so that has allowed, I think, you know, the, the bigger banks in the U.S., particularly, you know, U.S. bank. I mean, you see it across all of the banks um, and they're all thinking about how do we tell our story in a more authentic way? How do, what do we truly do that is different and that offers something unique and exciting to our customers that isn't what the others are doing? And how do we partner with the right fintechs to do that or find not even fintechs, different partnership brands or companies to help us kind of deliver that experience in a better way? So it's elevated all the, all the boats, if you will, I think in that sense. So it's great for consumers overall. And just hearing the use of the word authenticity when we're talking about this sector in particular is quite surprising, isn't it? It seems surprising, I think, 
for some out there, right? Banking has had a pretty bad name in the past. It's it's taken its hits. Some companies, I mean, for me, US Bank side, and Brooke can speak to this more than more than I can, but I mean, their ethical standards are beyond anything. And that is what we talk about when we talk about connecting what is authentic about the delivery of an experience or product or a service into something that is a bigger framework to create innovations out of, right? Or to continue to build the future from. I think that's a great point, Camilla. You know, we think a lot about our purpose and values at US Bank, not only how it attracts people to our brand uh, and our brand as an employer, but also about the impact we have on communities. And what I've really enjoyed about the last year is when you think about how the, the pandemic has disrupted things, the influence of fintechs on the banking sector is just this opportunity to really grab hold of our purpose, our values, and activate it across the organization. And, you know, in a seat like mine, we think a lot about brand. We think about it as a a means for activating our purpose across our range of experiences and products and services more broadly. You know, but it is an opportunity for us to align as an organization, not only our ethical standards and our our values, but also how we deploy them and, you know, use that to make a customer's life better um, through the financial services we provide. Now, Simon, an area that is a regular fixture in the Future Brand Index is the importance of trust. Have there or will there be any regulation changes around privacy and data that might impact how consumers interact with financial brands, particularly in the digital space, would you say? Well, I think the only way that data protection is going is more. There's obviously not a universal code and and different things are happening in different parts of the world, but the the general direction of travel is more pro-consumer and definitely towards opt-in, which which I think together with the the open banking rules that uh, Shahar and Stuart alluded to probably means that trust is, is as ever the key you know, the question is, what do you define as trust? And and for me, trust is the accumulation of positive experiences. I just think as, as long as both challenges and incumbents provide agile, relevant customer innovation, that the permission and trust will come from customers to, to opt in to those brands. What would worry me is when I see brands like Revolut starting to talk about offering customer access to FX trading platforms and potentially crypto trading platforms, which are not great areas of of trust in terms of, uh, and not great areas of regulation. So I think it depends on how each individual entity plays it. But provided authentic accumulation of positive experiences will always get customers to opt in, I would say. So, so I, I love the authentic accumulation of positive experiences. And, and, and the biggest threat I have, we've talked about, you know, big US banks coming and getting a foothold here, is failure to deliver consistent and consistently good customer experience because customers have choices and they're increasingly exercising them and they will leave. And so that emotional trust that someone has with you is really important. I put alongside that, uh, and it's not as a defense, rational trust. Uh, the way I think about it is I sort of split split the two. People need rational trust. This is their money. It can be their life savings. It can be whatever else. They need to know that it's there the next day and the day after. And so the longer and more successful a fintech goes on for and increasingly exhibits that they are not fragile, that they can have that rational trust, 
then they will, they will be very successful, that they won't be hit by cyber attacks, that they won't frivolously give your data away. Back to the point of the question, that actually they trust with the money and with your privacy. I, I think fintechs will continue to have a very important role. But of course, it's something that the incumbent banks have been doing for, as I say, decades. And so that rational trust becomes important. But it's only important if you're delivering those consistently positive experiences for your customers. So those two things sort of sit side by side. We need to invest in cybersecurity. We need to invest in resilience. We need to make sure that people's money is safe. Shahar, do you want to uh, add to that definition of trust? I like the fact that Simon defined it. It's one of the better definitions I've heard. There's a very large book called The Speed of, of Trust. It's a very thick book that talks about the speed of trust and talks about how people perceive trust and define trust. And different cultures define trust differently. And when we start Curve, maybe an anecdotal example of trust, how we think about trust in the product development, the biggest challenge we had is that I trust my bank. It's hard for me to trust any other fintech or new bank with my deposit, with my salary, with my income, with my assets. And came the problem, well, my bank doing a great job keeping my money safe. So the job to be done there is done properly with HBC Barclays Lloyds. How can we be able to get where we need to get to uh, with the element of trust? And the outcome is very simple. Don't, do, don't be a bank. Do something else. And by doing something else, which is more of a technology layer, it means that the trust that people instill or assign to banks remains with the bank. My money remains with HBC. I keep using HBC account. I keep using HBC credit card and debit card. I just connect it to Curve. So Curve merely have the interaction layer with all my banking, which means I have less trust need to be assigned to our platform. Still, there's all the element of trust that Simon and Stuart talked here about customer experience, about cybersecurity, about will the company contain, maintain for very long, especially as you start to bridge more towards early majority and late majority audiences and millions of customers, which we're there now. But the speed of trust is really important. And I think it's going to be really hard for any new player to come to the market. And I mean challenger players, not incumbents that move geographies to get trust for the majority of people. And there's a name to HBC that carries a lot of weight with it. And you know it's a global company and you know they will unlikely to default. And if they do, they're too big to fail. Someone will come and help them and save them. That type of trust people rely on with banks. Without wanting to do a sort of subtle plug, one of the banks that I'm responsible for is First Direct. And what we're trying to do there is you've got the rational trust around HSBC, but you also have um, the customer experience. And we've delivered relatively consistently for 30 years. It's about modernizing that now and making it relevant to new audiences, younger audiences, um, so that we are competing, if you like. We're trying to challenge the challenger banks. Um, and perhaps that's a little bit of a defensive play against the likes of Chase coming in as well. So another area I wanted to look at is how factors like the salience of ESG is impacting on consumers' choice and behaviour with finance brands. Here's Camilla's thoughts on this, and then we'll hear from Brooke. Well, ESG is a whole other ballgame in that sense, right? So that used to be something that kind of sat on the side, sort of the same way brand almost did. You know, it was like, there's the core business strategy and all these other things. And then we've got this branding thing. And then we have this ESG thing and we're doing them all, but none of it was really integrated. And the key difference, I think, in what's happening now is that the integration of the real thoughtful ESG strategies into the actual product and services and the delivery of an authentic brand is happening now on the banking side, right? So where can we make a big impact? How can we think about, you know, Brooke was talking about the impact on communities and how you think about 
you know, financial literacy? Um, and how do you help people build generational wealth who aren't used to having generational considerations when they think about, do I even have wealth? What is that, right? There's a redefinition of wealth happening as people start to think about ESG and, and the values that come with aligning that, right? The fintech side, a lot of those, as you know, we were saying, are built out of this very targeted specific space. And a lot of them are built around, you know, either one of the sustainable development goals from the UN or they're built around something very specific that helps a consumer understand how to use their finances or invest in a particular way that's sustainable or aligned with their values or whatever that might be. So it's coming from both directions. You have the banking side on the institutional and the corporate sides. You have actual regulation and metrics now starting to be formed around ESG. So people have no choice, right? How do I how do I change my strategy? How do I engage with these things? How do I make sure I'm being true to what I need to deliver against? And then on the personal banking side, you've got people who genuinely want to make decisions based on their own values around how they think about the environment, how they think about corporate governance um, and all these other things. So it's coming at pressures from both sides. And I think that's a wonderful story to tell because it means that it's here to stay, right? And it's coming from all angles. Oh, it's really well said, Camilla. You're, you're right. It is coming from both sides. You know, the regulators are, are advancing an agenda. Stakeholders and shareholders are looking for, you know, understanding how we're tracking and progressing and measuring our, our ESG efforts. And consumers have been clamoring for it for a long time, you know, investing by their values and, and looking to do business with those they have shared shared understanding with. So it, it is certainly it is certainly coming at us from all angles. So, Simon, are you happy to give your thoughts on this issue? I, I just think that this will be driven largely by regulation and institutional pension investors will demand ESG compliance from the banks and the brands that they've worked with. But, but I also think that when we used to look at a brand positioning for a corporate entity, we used to say it needed to answer, it needed to be re- resonant to four quadrants. Customers, would I buy from you? Potential employees, would I work for you? Investors, would I invest in you? And society, would I allow you to do business? And I think we used to look at ESG components in the past in the society quadrant of, would I allow you to function? I think now the ESG dimension covers all four. Would I work for you? Would I buy from you? Would I invest in you? And will society allow me to operate? So it's it's absolutely central, but I think it will be accelerated by regulation and uh, institutional pension investors. And not far behind it, retail customers clearly have a, a, a deep interest and attribute value to it as well. Stuart, can I invite you to comment on that as well? Yeah, look, what, what, what Simon says is absolutely right. And I, 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 for my sins, I was educated as a physicist uh, at university, and I got through through the nature of my role. I got to go to Glasgow last year to COP. Let's be in no doubt. This is an existential threat to the globe. So each year from now on, this is going to get higher and higher and higher levels of fear engendered through populations, and therefore importance given to it as we see more and more apocalyptic events throughout the world. Um, Now, I'll get off my soapbox, you know, because I'm sitting in a bank. Um, Banks finance the economy, uh, ultimately. Now, they do that under the behest of shareholders, to Simon's point, the big pension funds, etc. 
Um, therefore, banks have a role to finance the transition. And that sometimes can be unpopular. So if you're a big bank like us, it does mean you have to help those who are high polluters to stop polluting. And that means you're financing polluters, you know, so you can get yourself into, you know, relatively controversial areas. But the things about HSBCs or JP Morgans or others, it used to be viewed that they're too big to care. You could also view that, that they're big enough to make a difference. And in something like climate change, I think it is going to be that thing which actually starts to glue the whole ESG together, you know, because yes, it's about the environment, but ultimately social cause is going to come from that. And well governed under the regulation and rules, it's, got, it's going to all be driven from that. And, and I think we have to prove that we're not too big to care, that we are big enough to make a difference in these things and actually put our money where our mouths are with regard to this. Those that have credibility in this space will win consumer confidence. Yeah, I mean, we're coming from a long way back, Stuart, when I think I saw a stat that says one in every six pounds of uh, UK pension investments is in BP. Well, you know, and, and they were there for a reason. Uh, they were there because there was a dividend paid. But of course, the amount of financing they're going to in short term with the challenges in Eastern Europe, I think this is probably a mute point, but as... Carb, be it carbon taxes or whatever else to come in, it starts to erode those historic models, even some of the exclusive profit, profit motive alongside the emerging climate disaster is going to have to change that. And I think it will change it faster than people are anticipating. Shahal, do you want to add anything? So actually for Tard, what can we do to promote ESG? It's not because our investors actually are you an ESG company, it's just because as their team, we are responsible we're working to bring a legacy behind us, which is more just the impact on customers' life. It's the legacy of the company we built. And uh, one of the things uh, we introduced in the roadmap is that spend, your spend profile, is actually a very good proximity to your footprint, carbon footprint. Uh, whether I take an airline, whether I take uh, put gas in, in, in my car, and so on and so forth, where I live, and, and so on and so forth. How much I buy, how much food, how much I order. So we worked with MasterCard to create conversion from the spend and curve, of course, see all your spend from all your accounts. From whatever account you have, you put everything to curve and we can see all your spend across geography and pots. And so we worked with MasterCard to create a conversion that best on spend, what's the couple of footprint you have? And hopefully by the end of the year, we'll launch it. The experience will be something as following. As a customer, every month, you'll be able to see your carbon footprint for the month. You will have like a, a diameter which tells you, are you in the green or the red? Obviously, you'll be in the red because you've spent, you've traveled, and you're able to use the cashback get from Curve or your own money to buy carbon points and move back to the green area. So we'll incentivize customers to understand awareness, what's the carbon footprint, and give them a very easy way to bring them into the green zone and covering the carbon footprint. Really interesting hearing about that spend profile. We will talk more about future plans in a moment as we're heading towards the end of this episode. We're going to hear first from Brooke uh, about the plans that US Bank have in place for the next 12 to 18 months. And we'll come to hear more about HSBC and more about Curve. I mean, improving brand perceptions has a lot to do with customer experience design and a deep understanding of who you are, your purpose, your values, and how you action that for your customers. And so when I think about improving perceptions, it has a lot to do with building trust through seamless experiences, through um, authenticity. You know, you have to show up in a way that's consistent with what people understand of you. You know, and I talked a little earlier about the idea of brand strategy being an alignment tool. And it's really helped us, I think, unlock how we can bring that um, consistent activation that brings us back to, you know, 
really what we're here to do, how we're here to serve community, um, our purpose, our values, and then action that through the products and services that we provide. Everything that Brooke's saying, right, is so important, but it comes through the understanding and the delivery of the internal people, right? So it's this corporate culture that also is the hugest part of brand that is so often not really thought about as part of brand or anything like that, right? So you have your corporate strategy and then the wrapper to that is brand. And that's like the human way of speaking about your corporate strategy and your business priorities. And so what that is, it plays out externally, is what you hope that will happen, that everybody experiences it. But also internally, you need to train people to bring them on the journey to create them as the brand ambassadors, if you will, to create the experiences on the external side. And so what's kind of really interesting that's happening now, you know, and, you know, even some of the work that's going on at US Bank, they've been so wonderfully thoughtful about how the brand plays out internally as well as externally. And that is going to have a huge difference, I think, down the track because people start to think differently. Their mindsets are aligned. Uh, the different behaviors that happen internally naturally kind of, you know, it's not really a barrier anymore. So it kind of bleeds through externally. And so it makes for a much more integrated experience all around. Oh, I love that you brought up the inside out nature, Camilla, because you're so you're so right. I mean, the way the world experiences our business is through our brand and our brand in a lot of cases is our people. Even in this digitally accelerated world we live in, the interactions with the people who wear the US bank pin or, you know, show up in the branches is still so relevant. Even if you're, you know, experiencing someone from the, the business in your community through volunteerism or other actions that they're taking, it is absolutely important to build inside out. And it's been, I think, one of the great successes we're having at U.S. Bank is that comprehensive thinking about how the brand and the business and the people all work together to change perceptions. And am I right in saying that that also, if you're looking inside out, puts the emphasis on there being such importance in diversity in what that internal kind of organization looks like? Absolutely. We've had just tremendous success in our DEI programs over the last many years, but especially the last two years. Our chief diversity and inclusion officer, Greg Cunningham, reports directly to the CEO and has had tremendous success building programs um, at the bank to you know, support our communities and our employees. We're particularly excited about our work in the access commitment space. It's a multi-pronged program to support and lift up people in our community and how we as you know, individuals and also as a company can really support that work. I'm really glad you brought that up. So Stuart. Are you happy to talk more about plans for the next 12, 18 months? Sure. I, do you know what? We've covered a, a fair chunk of it already. I think when it comes to competence, uh, it is about digitization and customer experience. So the more that we digitize simply and intuitively end to end, I think the more that we can improve the customer experience alongside. So having like a bank in your pocket alongside having those great people in our branches and our contact centers on our chats able to deal with the things that, that fall off the happy path, be that life or indeed banking. So that's one part. The second part is banks now need to have a social purpose. We talked about that in the context of ESG, um, but I think it's broader than that. I think banks are afforded a role by the license to operate to be able to support society. We've got a cost of living crisis. We need to be thoughtful about how we help people deal with the aspects of that. Uh, we've recently launched in our branches a uh, safe space for those that are victims of domestic abuse. We're supporting homeless people getting bank accounts. These social causes matter to people, I think, now more than ever. 
So that's that's an important part. The third part, and this is very HSBC, you know, we're one of the few international banks in the UK and we need to be better at that, quite frankly. Our brand promises internationality and we often fail to deliver. So we're going to be investing and improving our international offerings and perhaps we're learning lessons from the revolutes and the transfer wise of the world. And then finally, and I go back to it a little bit like social purpose, I think how we support the transition is going to be hugely important as the world needs to wean itself off its carbon dependency. Thank you, Stuart. Shahar, you talked about your, your spend profile coming later in the year. What else have Curve got planned? So the focus of Curve for the next day, 12 to 18 months is really three things. Uh, we just launched in the US market about three weeks ago. So scale the US and uh, achieve the key result, we objective key result we set to ourselves. Uh, the second one is we'll start our work in Europe. We're just scratching the surface, so expand the operation UK and Europe. We did that, of course, introducing several more other products and services that helps the customer, empower the customer to get more financial freedom. And the last bit of the focus is around Curve Credit or Curve Flex is the trading name. And the goal is to continue to reduce the borrowing costs for our customers and help them bridge the gap in society that credit helps to bridge by lending responsibly. So we'll start that in the UK in December and we expand that in course Europe and with different experiences and different geographies and eventually in the US. Okay, well, Simon, we're going to come back to you to finish off then. And what practices would you say financial services and fintech brands need to do to retain their high listing when you come to release the next update of the Future Brand Index due out in September? I think Stuart and Shahar have said it. In my words, use your authentic purpose to innovate with empathy. And I think that's and always with the customer led. I think I think that's innovate with empathy would be my uh, take on it. And just on the uh, closing on the the, ne- the next future brand index, worth taking a look at the 2021 uh, edition. You can download it at futurebrand.com because this is the one that really led to this discussion. Thanks, Simon. Well, that wraps up this episode. So thank you once again to all my guests, Shahar Bialik, Stuart Hare and Simon Williams for all joining me online today. And of course, to Brooke Brown and Camilla Marr for their contributions too. We hope you've enjoyed this episode and we'd love to hear any comments you may have on our discussion. So if you'd like to contribute, you can do that on our Facebook page, Twitter feed, our YouTube channel, LinkedIn and Instagram pages, which are all linked from the top of the website at csuitepodcast.com, where you'll also find all our previous shows and supporting show notes, plus links to where you can follow us for automatic downloads of each episode via your favourite podcast app. And if you've enjoyed the podcast, please do give us a positive rating and review. Finally, if you would like to get in touch with the show, you can do that via the contact form on the website. But for now, from me, Natalie Silverman, thanks for listening and goodbye.